everyone and welcome back to the Infection Prevention in Conversation podcast brought to you by the Journals of the Healthcare Infection Society. I'm Gemma Windsor, the Editor-in-Chief of Infection Prevention in Practice. I'm really excited to introduce two fantastic guests for our conversation today. I have with me Dr Felicity Fitzgerald, an IHR Academic Clinical Lecturer in Paediatric Infectious Diseases, working between UCL Great Ormond Street Institute of Child Health and the Biomedical Research and Training Institute in Harare, Zimbabwe and Dr Gwendolyn Cimini, Senior Lecturer in Paediatrics at the Faculty of Medicine and Health Sciences at the University of Zimbabwe and Consultant Paediatrician at the Salim Mugabe Central Hospital in the Neonatal Unit in Harare, Zimbabwe. Welcome so much to you both. Today, we're going to be focusing on the challenges of infection prevention and control in working in lower and middle income settings. And I have to say, this is something that I hadn't really considered too much before I took on the editor role. I'm ashamed to say, um, having the privilege of working in a, a relative, you know, high income country. But when I started to receive some of the papers and really think about some of those challenges, it was it opened a whole new world to me and made me realise I'd been really ignorant about that before. So that's why we thought today would be an absolutely great and fantastic opportunity to have you on and discuss some of those challenges that you obviously face as part of your bread and butter work so to speak and have helped to focus some of the research opportunities so if I could start with you please Felicity if you wouldn't mind just talking us through your career how you came to where you are now what your interests are and then after that Gwendolyn we can come to you. Sure well thank you so much for having us both I think it's a really exciting opportunity to talk a bit about the work that um, we've been doing and some of the projects in Zimbabwe so um, yeah I um, am a paediatric infectious diseases specialist uh, but also an academic and uh, my research has veered from a bit of HIV work to then some Ebola work in Sierra Leone and it was really looking at nosocomial transmission of Ebola that then got me thinking more about infection control in hospital settings more generally and so then when I started working in Zimbabwe, it seemed to be such an important problem and one that people had just put in a box saying this is too hard and we're never going to be able to fix this because, you know, the solution to this is a huge injection of cash that we're never going to have. It just felt really defeatist and also short-sighted and wrong that you could turn away from a problem that was so important by saying that you thought it was too difficult. And I think that was really kind of the, the starting point of the work that we've been doing with Dr. Chimini and with some other colleagues at uh, Sally Mugabe Central Hospital is saying, okay, so with the resources that we do have, particularly our absolutely fantastic staff, what are the changes that we can make that will be sustainable, that can improve the outcomes for the babies that we're looking after? That was kind of really the, the starting point that, yes, it's going to be really hard, but that doesn't mean that we shouldn't be doing it. And when did you first go out to Africa and how did the opportunity arise? Oh, goodness. So I actually, I wanted to work in African settings actually since medical school. So, um, you know, a medical school elective in Malawi and uh, then doing a master's project based in South Africa. And then my PhD was supposed to be based in Uganda, ended up being based in London. I kind of got slightly itchy feet and then ended up um, in the Ebola response in 2014-2015 in Sierra Leone. After that, then shifted my work to Zimbabwe. And I think I've absolutely loved working in Zimbabwe. I think we've got such fantastic colleagues out there and there's, you know, there's an awful lot of work to do, but the environment is 
wonderful because it it feels like such a brilliant partnership with the clinicians that I'm working with out there like you know Gwen and I spark ideas off each other all the time and similarly with our other colleagues out there you know it it doesn't feel like this is you know me parachuting in saying okay you know like let's you know let's like fix stuff it feels like it feels very much like the Zimbabweans that I work with are driving the change a lot of the time and that you know that is a fantastic and really um exciting way of working thanks so much for that and and Gwendolyn can you talk us through the same um your current roles how you got there and then perhaps at the end how you ended up collaborating with Felicity so I have been working um as a pediatrician for the past 15 years um, in the neonatal unit at Harare uh, Hospital, that's Salimugabe. Uh, formerly Harare Hospital, now Salimugabe uh, Central Hospital, neonatal unit. And we had this huge burden of uh, neonatal deaths, uh, among the causes being uh, prematurity, being the top cause, and then intrapartum related deaths, and then sepsis. Sepsis was one of the major causes. So we found that most of our preterms were dying of sepsis. And what got me interested was that when we were looking at the few that we managed to get blood cultures done, they were not, uh, we were not growing what was in the books. Because as we were reading and as we were being a uh, during our, um, our training and even in our practice, looking at the, at the empirical antibiotics that we were using and uh, even what we were teaching the medical students, we were teaching them uh, things that were book with, with the literature that was coming from the West. And what we were seeing, uh, that, that was what these babies were dying of, where organisms, uh, bacteria, that these things that were not written in the books. So it got me interested and um, um, wanting to find out more, what are these babies dying of? That's when Felicity came along and she, with the Neo tree and the Neo lab, we managed to uh, sort of uh, produce a data set where we were able to look back and say, oh, this is what is killing the babies. We found that we had a huge burden of Klebsiella pneumonia, which was killing the, these babies. And so it sort of got me interested in now um, uh, looking around, we found out that infection and prevention control was one of the best, uh, the biggest pillar that could prevent these infections. So that's how we started working together and we uh, started driving IPC practices in, the, in, our, in our units and also looking at antimicrobial antibiotic stewardship and, uh, and all those things. So basically this has uh, driven my also my interest and also my where I want really to move forward. Thank you so much for that and that sets us up really really nicely um, because several of those points that you brought up um, we will talk about um, and I've read about in the papers that you submitted to the journals so I will come on to talk about all of those things but that ties in really really nicely with if you like what was for me one of the um, precipitants into wanting to do a podcast about the challenges of IPC um, in low-income countries which was reading the GRAM report so 
The GRAM report is the global burden of antimicrobial bacterial resistance from 2019. And this is a huge, huge piece of work that was published in The Lancet uh, in February of this year that involved both a systematic analysis and then a predictive statistical modelling method to estimate deaths and uh, morbidity in disability adjusted life years that could be attributable to and directly associated with bacterial antimicrobial resistance. The reason that I wanted to bring this up um, within the podcast today was the very high impact of AMR in in low-income countries and some of the um, strategies that the authors suggest to to tackle that. So I'll just read a little bit from it because um, it's really, really shocking. The authors suggest that on the basis of their predictive statistical models, there are an estimated 4.95 million deaths associated with bacterial AMR and 1.27 that were directly attributable to bacterial AMR in 2019 alone. Now, when you delve into that a little bit more deeply, um, five regions globally had death rates that were associated with bacterial AMR of greater than 75 per 100,000. Four of those regions were sub-Saharan Africa and the other was Southeast Asia. So that in itself is fairly black and white in in, in its suggestions. They also go on to show that highest rates of death were in sub-Saharan Africa, followed by South Asia. High bacterial AMR burdens are a function of both the prevalence of resistance and the underlying frequency of critical infections, such as bacteremias and low respiratory tract infections. Other drivers observed in the higher burden within lower and middle income countries included the scarcity of laboratory infrastructure, which Gwendolyn, you just touched on ever so slightly and also the uh, inability to have data on antimicrobial resistance to help inform treatment or to stop or to narrow the spectrum of antimicrobial treatment, which again goes back to what you say about what you were expecting to see, but what you actually saw. And essentially, it just really highlighted to me the, the issues that IPC practitioners in lower and middle income countries must be facing every day. And the authors go on really nicely, I think, because I think sometimes people don't always make the obvious association that one of the key things to actually tackle AMR is IPC. So we talk a lot about about antimicrobial stewardship, but sometimes we don't talk about the very basic function of IPC and and public health. So the roles of things like vaccination um, in preventing infections in the first place and preventing antimicrobial resistant infections. So I just wondered if you could just speak a little bit to that. It is shocking. And I think when you look at the numbers they're so enormous and they're dwarfing hiv and malaria and those are the you know those are the the, what we've always thought of as being the big killers and i think it's probably no surprise no surprise to gwen and not much of a surprise to me that uh, so many of these dallies and the deaths are um, in the neonates and actually i think delving a bit deeper into the gram reports you can see so looking and again what gwen was saying Looking at the dallies lost from group B strep, which we were always taught is the number one killer versus uh, for, for um, neonates versus Klebsiella pneumoniae, the Klebsiella pneumoniae is three times higher. And we don't get taught that at medical school. And even, you know, speaking to many of my you know, pediatric infectious diseases training colleagues now as well, it's just not something that is particularly on the radar and again it feels like Gwen was saying uh, that you know this is something that's basically a hangover of being taught from stuff from the west that just isn't appropriate anymore and even when you know the data have been emerging over the last few years or being at least being published in um, systematic reviews and things we still haven't quite kind of focused that the bugs are different and that actually that means we need to 
change the like change some of the ways that we are thinking about neonatal sepsis in particular. Interesting. And just to add on to what uh, Felicity has been saying, um, yes, the books were written, and the, this is what we, we have been teaching in medical school about group distress, but we are seeing things uh, that claps pneumonia is the biggest cause of, uh, of mortality, in, in, especially in sub-Saharan Africa when we look at neonatal sepsis. So we need to redefine because it redefine and re-strategize, re-stratify neonatal sepsis. We need to relook at the risk factors, what we have been talking about over the years, what we've been teaching our medical students. It needs to be, we need to redefine it and re-stratify neonatal sepsis, especially in sub-Saharan Africa. And also to the policymakers, uh, to WHO, First of all, and then to the maybe UN, other UN agents, uh, there is need for us to be putting a, um, a CLEBS on the radar now, so that uh, the the scientific committee and the uh, the leaders, be it the political leaders, can also uh, come to realize that it is such a big, a huge problem, because when you look at the deaths that are occurring in these uh, children, neonates who are affected by this organism, it's enormous. And also the fact that the, uh, the antibiotics, um, there's a lot of uh, resistance, kappa permanent um, resistance to CLEPS pneumo, and uh, the, the empirical antibiotics, uh, which um, uh, the WHO recommends for these low-income countries, they don't target this uh, resistant Klebsiella. Uh, uh, and so there's also need for access to second line antibiotics and also need for even for pharmaceutical companies to reduce the cost so that it can be, uh, this second line antibiotics can be accessible to ordinary uh, women. Uh, for example, like in our, in our unit where I work in, when a, a blood culture comes back and we have got this, uh, 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 this carbapamine uh, beta-lactamase resistant organism, in most cases, the hospital pharmacy does not have the antibiotic and the prescription is given to the mother to go and outsource the antibiotic. For example, if it comes back, it's sensitive to uh, things like uh, meropenem or imipenem, it's not available because it's not listed on the essential drug list of the, of the country. So the government does not secure that antibiotic, so it won't be there. So they have to go and source it from a private pharmacy where it can cost as much as uh, uh, 10 times the, the amount, the, the, the total live, the living expense for a family. Uh, so it, it, is, it becomes unreachable to most families and those children end up dying. So these are some of the things that we encounter. That's really insightful and, and definitely will give me some food for thought because, yeah, I mean, I'm very privileged to work in a centre where if we have to give a carbapenem or another second or third line agent to one of our neonates, it's just something we don't have to think twice about. And I think that 
something you take for granted, just being able to give the advice that you want to give and know that that drug will be administered in a, in a timely fashion, regardless, just based on the clinical need. And that, that brings me on really nicely to um, a short report that both of you authored that was published in Infection Prevention in Practice in 2020, which was auditing the use of antibiotics for Zimbabwean neonates. Um, when I was reading this again to refresh my memory um, in order to record the podcast today, it gives some really nice insights into what the neonatal unit is like, the challenge, some just some of the challenges that you must be facing, Gwendolyn. So um, just to give the listeners an example, I'll read directly from, uh, from your paper. It's a public sector hospital and delivers um, 12,000 babies a year or did at that time. There is a hundred cot neonatal unit, which runs up to 140% capacity. And then it also goes on to talk about overcrowding and understaffing being constant issues for you. And also blood cultures being processed manually using locally manufactured media with a limited ability to isolate and identify and provide susceptibility testing depending on consumables availability. The lab being on a separate site and results being collected by hand on a daily basis by an intern. So can you just talk us through what your unit is like, kind of put some meat on those bones for us, Gwendolyn, of some of the challenges you face and what the day-to-day life is like for your clinical workload dealing with those and managing those babies? Uh, so I can say that the the workload is huge. Um, the unit is understaffed. Oh, there are three uh, consultants, one of whom is a neonatologist, and then the others are just myself and the other uh, consultant. We are pediatricians who we have been working in the neonatal unit for a long time. And then we also have um, registrars, uh, and these are cadres in training who are training to be pediatricians. So, so we have one or two regist- uh, registrars, and then interns, uh, eight to uh, maybe eight to ten at any one time. Uh, and when we say interns, these are junior doctors who are in their internship. And then we also have we have nurses, but uh, we uh, it's and we are understaffed. Maybe out of the requirements, staff requirements that is needed, we have maybe about 50% uh, of uh, the nurses being on duty. Uh, there's a lot of attrition of nurses, as you know. Many nurses uh, are coming to work uh, because of the uh, poor salaries and the poor working conditions and general poor um, socioeconomic uh, status that is. Uh, we are currently having as a country, uh, most nurses are being, uh, uh, they are living uh, for, for greener pastures. So you find that uh, you are having to work with nurses who are not uh, familiar with the neonatal unit all the time. Uh, you have to train them to be able to handle neonates and to be able to, to feed these uh, small babies with uh, oral gastric tubes um, so the moment you are happy that you have trained this particular bunch of nurses, uh, then they, they go, they, they resign. So it's quite a challenge. And then the junior doctors, as I was saying as well, they rotate with us for two months and then they move on to another specialty. And so these are some of the challenges. And um, most of the uh, parents who bring in their children there, they are of a very poor socioeconomic status. They are drawn from the poor 
suburbs of uh, of Harare, and we also have the babies um, transfer ins from uh, other parts of the country. For example, in surgical cases, because our unit is the only one which uh, is the neonatal surgical unit, so we have got uh, transfers from the northern half of the country uh, coming in with complex surgical conditions which need uh, the attention of the of the uh, pediatric surgeons. So although the, it's overcrowded, but uh, I must say, fortunately, the, our babies don't share incubators or bassonets, but they, they end up being spaced very close to each other. And um, Felicity, would you also mind just talking about your experience um, on that unit? Sure, yeah. So um, I think Gwen has... Um, described it very well um, I just wanted to add a bit as somebody coming from a you know a, a high resource to a low resource settings I think some of the things that really struck me when I first started working on the unit was um, because of um, often quite patchy antenatal coverage and it's it's not like people are routinely getting ultrasounds in pregnancy there's also a, a much higher burden of um, congenital anomalies so things that we would just not necessarily see in the UK so things like you know pretty catastrophic congenital anomalies that often don't survive very long but and that we would have picked up on um, antenatal screening or things for example like fetal high drops and that kind of stuff again that would be you know picked up in antenatal screening and that just doesn't happen because there isn't the capacity for it um, that I think was something quite that um, and I think also what Gwen was saying about, you know, these a lot of these mothers coming from the, the poorest parts of society, they're so young, some of the mothers, and particularly the ones who've come from somewhere rural and their baby, you know, their, their baby has had some something disastrous happened to them. And these girls are just in their teens, you know, they're 17, 18. This poor girl is there by herself and she may be miles from home. And I remember one time in particular when this poor woman had come from the other side of the country and her baby had died and she didn't have money for the bus fare home. And I remember the, you know, it was you actually, I think, Gwen, who led a whip round of the doctors to give her the money to get the bus back to her family, you know, like without a baby. And just it's those, it's those kinds of really, yes, yeah, so upsetting things that are happening kind of on a daily basis um, on this unit. And it just, it made me have... I'm so humbled, Gwen, by the work that you and the rest of your staff do there on a day to day basis. I think I certainly found it very hard for the brief bit that I'm there. And I think it's just it's incredible that, you know, the commitment you have to your patients and to the families that you look after. Thank you. When actually when I first uh, visited Harare Central and I was talking to Gwen about neonatal sepsis, which was a, a passion that we both shared, um, the uh, other consultant is called uh, Dr. Simbarashi Chimulia, and he said, well, look, Felicity, I would love doing this research with you, but the problem that I have is data and that I don't even know the number of babies who we admitted last month because when I go to um, uh, when I go to the hospital record system, they point me to this huge pile of paper that is being eaten by termites and um, trying to get those basic figures about, you know, mortality rates for the month or mortality rates by weight or even, you know, admission diagnoses is almost impossible. And to do that kind of an audit by hand or that kind of, you know, basic um, uh, governance by hand is incredibly time consuming and very unrewarding. Um, so I then had some discussions with some other colleagues at UCL who are working on Neotree and then brought back Neotree to show to Gwen and Simba to see what they thought. And Neotree is a digital quality improvement platform. So basically it, it re has replaced 
the admissions and the discharge forms at uh, Sally Mugabe. And it means that the junior doctors now do all the admissions on a, on a tablet. And it has decision support as they go along. So um, as Gwen was saying, the doctors are interns. So they're the equivalent in the UK of F2s. And they're parachuted into this really quite hardcore situation of very thick neonates. And I think having neotree there with them, uh, Gwen can speak more to this, guiding them through the assessment of babies has been very useful. And of course, it has the data capture function as well. So finally, we were able to produce these lovely graphs of like, you know, how many babies were admitted last month and, and start to use that data for quality improvement projects and things. Um, Neolab is the other aspect which allows us to uh, feedback uh, blood culture results from the lab on site to the ward. And it was the moment, so we do that by Wi-Fi. So now the results are printed on the ward from the lab. And when it first happened, it was like a miracle. I was like, oh, I can't believe we've done this. We've actually managed to print these results remotely from the lab, which is like 200 meters away, direct to the ward. And that, you know, just something as simple as that has been really, well, it, it wasn't simple. It was quite complicated getting it organized, but managing to get that organized. And uh, that has continued now for nearly four years has been incredibly, um, uh, I think a testament to, to the staff working on the unit and to the Neotree team that we've managed to keep that going. But Gwen, you can probably speak more about how um, you found Neotree working on the unit and um, for the junior doctors and things. Thank you. So uh, Neotree has been incredible because as she was saying, uh, before we had Neotree, we, we had no idea what we were doing because we were busy working, treating babies, making sure babies go home, making sure babies don't die. Uh, but at the end of the day, we wanted to know how, 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 what are we doing? Uh, how many babies did we actually treat? How many died? How many actually, are we doing any, any good to these babies? Is there anybody who is surviving? So Neotree has come very handy because we are able at the end of the month, just at the click of a button, to be able to see how many babies actually we, we saw. And we, we are glad that they're actually going home. So it will, not all of them are dying. So Neotree has been able to show us that. And then with the Neolab, we are able to get even the preliminary blood culture results. We get a printout after within 48 hours. And then we, we, we get the final result. And this was not possible before we started as you can see from that paper auditing use of antibiotics, sometimes the, we would get the blood culture results when the babies died or sometimes they've actually gone home. So although we would be doing the blood cultures, but uh, only I think only 4% of the culture results were being actually used to, to, to impact the treatment of the baby. So it has helped. And also um, just to say for our doctors, if they come in, they have very little training on, uh, on neonatology during their training. And then when they come, suddenly they are intense, they are put in this neonatal unit to work, to work with very small sick babies. And uh, they have to be looking, to be consulting for every patient. Now with the neotree, because it can guide them, they found it very useful. 
Um, yeah. I'll, I'll read some of the, the excerpts from the paper, if that's okay, and then um, Felicity, I'll, I'll come to you. Um, so I think with the help of, of Neotree, obviously you were able to audit the use of antibiotics and admissions um, on the unit, and you found that sepsis was the most common admitting diagnosis by interns both pre and post um, delivery of an intervention looking at um, essentially education and implementation of Neotree to help with antimicrobial stewardship. And you also found that um, antimicrobial prescribing reduced from around um, 98% in your preterm babies to only 51%. And you also managed to reduce in, inpatient days of therapy um, significantly from um, um, over 12, uh, 1,200 per thousand patient days. And that came right down. And you also had a problem, it looks like, with oral amoxicillin prescription at discharge, which lacked an evidence base. And you were able to reduce that from <laughs> unbelievably over 90% to around 1% of discharges using the, the app, um, which is fantastic. Do you, do you want to add to that, Felicity? Um, I actually just wanted to point out that we set, did that initial implementation of Neotree with um, a £10,000 grant from HIS. So it goes to like, actually £10,000 could go a really long way if you're careful with it. So we did all that initial implementation for the first year was um, was uh, from um, a small research grant from the Healthcare Infection Society. So thank you. So uh, and then we went on to get further funding after that. But yes, the oral amoxicillin, again, Gwen can correct me if I get this wrong, but for, from speaking to the junior doctors who were making the prescriptions I think that this was often an anxiety about the fact that the babies had been on the unit so they were worried that they might get an infection from having been so this was sort of like a kind of prophylaxis for all babies who'd been uh, admitted and were then being discharged and I think actually the rates were like 99.5 percent I think that's actually just because the one that didn't get it they'd just forgotten to write it on the form but um, they nearly all the babies were getting it because they thought it was the safest thing to do even though as Gwen was saying most of the bacteria that we find are causing um, sepsis are ESBL producing Klebsiella pneumoniae. So like actually the amoxicillin isn't going to do very much really to prevent infection from them. Um, and actually through this series of trainings that we did with the junior doctors and um, using Neotree displaying the data on the board and then each month saying, you know, remember amoxicillin isn't going to work. Okay, so who was doing amoxicillin? We didn't actually say who was doing amoxicillin prescription this, this month, but like you could see from Neotree the rate of prescription of amoxicillin. You could see it coming down over time. And by displaying those prescription rates each month and on the data dashboard in the unit, we've been able to look out if we get, often when you get a new lot of um, interns come through, you'll see a little blip and it will rise. And then when you present those data and say, look, you really don't need to do this, it's not going to help, um, then you see the rates come down again. So that's actually an improvement that's been sustained over um, the course of the intervention, which is really great. And I think something Gwen and her team can be proud of. Thanks so much for, for talking about that. And the other thing that you mentioned in that paper and you've alluded to um, in the podcast is... Um, sort of an ongoing outbreak I don't know whether now you would say it's an endemic of a, an ESBL producing Klebsiella um do you want to talk us a little bit about that are you seeing bacteremias does it I assume have a, an associated significant mortality any infection control uh, precautions you've been able to implement to try and control that can you talk a little bit about that maybe Gwendolyn please so we we have had a lot of ESBL uh, producing Klebsiella uh, pneumonia over time um, we have got blips, ups and downs of uh, of outbreaks in the, in the unit over the years. 
Uh, but uh, and then to counter this, we have enhanced infection control practices. Um, um, I think just as a background, our water supply in the unit has been erratic over the years. Um, and we have been advocating for the use of uh, alcohol and rub. And thanks to the COVID uh, pandemic, a positive uh, thing that we got was that um, the, the public, uh, the health workers, even the public, one of the measures for controlling uh, COVID, as you all know, was hand washing and making use of alcohol hand wrap. So the hospital authorities, um, in trying to mitigate against COVID, they managed to, they, they made sure that uh, there was a uh, alcohol hand wrap and also even the water supply has improved in the neonatal unit. So right now, if you just turn your back, you'll find a, a bottle of alcohol hand wrap, which was not there in uh, like at the time when we, we did this audit, uh, the audit of the, of the antibiotics. We didn't have, we, won, we, we had very scarce a supply of alcohol hand wrap. And sometimes the hospital would say it's out of stock. They would even say it's out of stock. They would afford to say that, but right now it's always there in full supply when you order it and we have got adequate bottles uh, all over. So infection control uh, practices have been enhanced and uh, these are some of the mitigatory measures that we have tried to try and, uh, and find the Klebsiella, yes, ESBO producing Klebsiella pneumonia. Thanks, Gwendolyn. Um, we've just got a short period of time left. Um, I was hoping if we could maybe briefly talk about uh, a more recent publication, um, maybe Felicity, please, um, a systematic review um, that you were an author on, the impact of interventions to, to reduce and prevent neonatal healthcare acquired infections in low and middle income countries. Maybe just talk, talk us briefly about some of the key findings from that, please, before uh, we wrap it up. Yes, sure. So again, I think one of the, the key things from this paper, as often with systematic reviews, is where are the studies, where do the studies come from? And I think that particularly in contrast with the ground where you've got this huge burden of um, antimicrobial resistant um, attributable deaths and attributed deaths, and the contrast with the dearth of evidence of effective interventions to improve um, infection control in uh, sub-Saharan African settings. So in our, in our review, Gwen was actually an author also with that one, is the, the, we had one study that we included that was from sub-Saharan Africa. And when you contrast that with the burden of disease, I mean, that's really where we've got to be focusing our efforts. And that study was a wonderful study um, based in Zambia and did seem to show some effectiveness for this bundle intervention, um, which is great, but it's a, you know, it's a single site intervention. And what we really need to think harder and think bigger about um, how we are designing these studies in the future and also the crucial importance of designing these studies. Because again, you just, I think as you know, I think we know very well, you cannot take solutions from high or even middle resource settings and just drop them in. It just doesn't, it doesn't work. Like, you know, and I think we, we see that time and again, and until you've got contextually appropriate evidence for how we can, um, start to limit and control these infections we're still just going to be working in the dark and um yeah these these deaths are going to climb i mean i think as gwen was saying you know they have done we have um made some strides in improving ipc at harare central but i mean the is definitely still 
there. I say, I don't think we've, I don't think we're going to get on top of it just at the moment, sadly. But yeah, so we've got a lot of work to do is where I think we would, what I would finish off with. I'd like to thank you both very much for joining me on the podcast today. To our listeners, if you'd like to find out more about the grants that are offered by the Healthcare Infection Society, please head to www.his.org.uk and click on the Funding and Awards tab. You can find out much more about how you can get involved with Neotree that was mentioned by both Felicity and Gwendolyn at neotree.org. We include both of these links, as well as links to all the papers that we've discussed and also the blog that Felicity and Gwendolyn authored um, for HISS in the show notes. If you're on Twitter, please follow us at JHI Editor and at IPIP underscore open to get further updates on the podcast and papers as they're published by the journals. Thank you very much. <laughs>